Welcome to this Radio Goes to the Movies edition of Forthright Radio for May 27, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Today we feature filmmakers from three of the outstanding documentaries screening at this year's Mendocino Film Festival. First, we hear Pamela Green discuss her film, Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet, followed by Sarah Dosa and her film, Fire of Love. And finally, Chikara Motomura's film, Journey to Hokusai, they are all screening at this year's Mendocino Film Festival, which is the first weekend of June, from June 2nd to 5th. Pamela Green, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Goes to the Movies. Your film is Be Natural. We are just bowled over by this film, Pamela Green, Be Natural. Let me just very briefly set the opening for our listeners, because it is is two minutes that is just extraordinary. The movie Be Natural opens with a very elderly Alice Guy Blachet being interviewed in French with subtitles. And this is more or less the, the dialogue. She says, it's indeed an old, old story. It dates back to 1896. And the interviewer says, and Hollywood had not yet been developed. And she says, oh, no, not at all, not at all. And then the word Hollywood from the subtitles is isolated on a black screen, rises into the upper right corner, then seamlessly becomes the sign on the hill overlooking current day Hollywood. It goes into an amazing three-dimensional graphic image audio meld going back decade by decade to the original. Hollywood Land sign flies through clouds to an aerial view of New York City, swirls left to moving picture world, Fort Lee, New Jersey, then an ocean liner to a Paris postcard, 1895, to the first public presentation of a motion picture. It is an exhilarating reverse history of movies done in under two minutes. And it is a superb way to prepare the viewer for the coming hour and 40 minutes of your documentary of Alice Guy Blachet. So, Pamela Green, who is Alice Guy Blachet? How did you learn of her? And how did you begin this monumental work, Be Natural, which you directed, produced, wrote, and edited? Thank you so much for that amazing intro. <laughs> I first found out about Alice when I had seen a show called Real Models about women pioneers in cinema. And one of them happened to be Alice Guy Blachet. And what blew me away about her is that she had accomplished so many things. She wasn't just a writer, director, producer. She was a studio owner and an artist and an entrepreneur. And I needed to find out more because... This was a brand new piece of information that just landed on my lap and rewired my brain in a way because I never thought of her first woman filmmaker. So I just began doing research. In your mini biography, it says that is actually one of the things you're known for in the industry is the research that you do. This is a packed movie, as you can tell from the first two minutes. <laughs> and it's kind of a detective story for you. It's almost a missing person case. Tell us a little bit about what was involved in finding out about her, because it's almost as if she were disappeared from movie history. Yes, basically, she wrote, directed, and produced a thousand films, and she had a 22-year career, and history forgot her. 
she's not the first. There are many that are forgotten. And there's many holes in history, for sure, especially pertaining to women being undocumented and not recorded. So it not only is showing that women are missing, but that history is being told in a way that is not correct. And I think the more we look at history with a new lens, with new information, we can not only correct Alice's history, but many other women and history as a whole with new information, you know, with the internet and all these different people that are finding ways to digitize material, et cetera. We can get a clearer picture. Be Natural is a great example of that, of course, because of all the new material that's in there. But as a whole, I think it'll inspire a lot of people to look in their garages, <laughs> look in their attics, or not be satisfied with what you read online. Be curious and be determined. After I watched this movie, Be Natural, about Alice Guy Blaché, I was astounded. I went through a lot of different emotions, but I would have to say the dominant emotion was rage and fury that such a creative person, such an innovator, someone who was there at the very, very beginning, we're talking 1895 and 1896, as you demonstrate, she actually wrote, produced, directed, probably if not the first, certainly one of the first narrative films in history, La Fée aux Choux, the uh, Cabbage Fairy. And you show a certain portion of that, and it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. Take us back to that era in Paris, 1895, 1896. It was a time of incredible innovation that we can hardly imagine now. Yeah, I mean, it's the first class of, of Silicon Valley, in a way. And when I was reading Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs and the way Apple began, I saw a lot of similarities with the beginnings of cinema. Who would ever use a computer at home? Or how would this even work? And same thing with cinema. Nobody believes that people would want to watch these things and that they could be turned into entertainment. And they were creating so many things. They were ahead of their time. They were thinking about so many subject matters. And I guess we're not 100% privy to that because when historians and academics take a slice of history, they don't take on the whole. Everybody contributes where they can because research takes years. I decided when I made this film to try to really give the audience a context that we're not that far away from these creators. They are kind of like the YouTubers and the Instagrammers of their time. We're just taking it further with the technology that's developed. The grammar of cinema has been infused thanks to Alice and early members, and we're just really taking it further. So I think, again, more research that will be done for that era will show how contemporary and modern those people were in their thinking and it kind of changes, again, the way you look at everything, which is exciting. It's exciting to find new information. Pamela Green, as you show in your film, Be Natural, there were other people using that extremely new technology of motion pictures, but they were doing just like snippets of, of everyday life or like trains going by. There was no... 
seeming impulse to storytelling. And that appears to be her first innovation. Talk about that aspect of Alice Guy Blaché's work. She's not the first to do a narrative. She's one of the first. That always gets confusing with people. She's the first woman to do a narrative, but she's definitely one of the first to do the narrative period and to develop cinema as a whole. And I think what makes her special is that rather than looking at the simplicity and continuing down that road of just documentation, her background and her imagination of storytelling was infused in what she was doing. And she's basically putting the beginning of the grammar of storytelling in her filmmaking, which is very, very special. Moving the medium forward where it could have just halted at just continuing to document and have little stories here and there. She really pushed the technology of how much she can do with, with the equipment, with the techniques, with the story, with first sound films, close-ups, so many different things that she is one of the pioneers of, of how you can take this medium and what you can do with it to entertain people and to sell, sell cameras. Because originally it's to sell cameras. It's not really thought of as films. They're like little pieces. It's like, oh, if you buy this camera, you could do this and this, and you can shoot it this way. So they're kind of like demos, but hers were much more entertaining because they had a beginning, middle, and end in the, in the story and always had a little bit of humor and extra little touches, which, again, make her special. In the end credits, I counted over 100 films of hers that you used in one way or another. And I am so grateful to you for having brought to the screen some of her work for us to see, because seeing is believing in this situation. And the quality of her filmmaking is so different from what I associate as the standard kind of stylized filmmaking of the United States silent film era. Uh, That was a revelation among many revelations in your film. And that brings up the title, Be Natural. Talk about that, please. That's a very good point. Basically, just because uh, there was a woman at the beginning before the 19th century making films, and doing all these things, that's just a piece of trivia, really. You know, it's a footnote. And who cares? <laughs> What's interesting is, was the work going to stand the test of time, really, and be special? And for me, when I saw her work, that's when I was really blown away and decided to take on the film because you have to have something to rely on. And definitely the work is her legacy. Sticky Woman a drunken mattress, consequences of feminism. They're hilarious, but they're also very well directed. And there's a timelessness and a universal aspect to some of her stories, including Ocean Wave, which completely blew me away. And she later, I found out, had a sign in her studio in 1912 that said, be natural for her actors. So it's such an obvious thing because we hear it every day. If you're working with a photographer or you're maybe doing a video for YouTube or you're working on a set and you hear a director just say, you know, just, just be, just be natural, you know, be yourself, like do it more naturalistic. And 
for her to have that sign so early in time and to see that that was important that would make her film stand out and last longer in a way is pretty revolutionary and also special. So that's why I decided to call the movie Be Natural because that's really what she was about. She really looked at human condition and society and try to capture that in different ways through the different stories, et cetera, and poked fun at some of the social issues at the time and from a woman's perspective as well, which is also something that we're not used to knowing, not used to knowing that there was a woman's point of view so early in cinema. So many, many, many layers to Alice Guy-Boucher. Well, among the innovations that she pioneered, and you, you did basically mention this briefly, was Le Chronophone. Her employer, Gaumont, patented it with Georges Laudet in 1902. And I had just thought that the reason they didn't have, quote-unquote, talkies until all, you know, the end of the 1920s was because it wasn't technically possible. But that simply isn't true. Would you talk about that and her use of that, the, the, the chronophone? So the chronophone is before the jazz singer, but it's very different because the jazz singer is different technology. But in order for you to get to that, there had to be technology that was created before that. And sometimes, many times, those things get forgotten because it's not as important as the latest thing that will push it forward. But whenever you're doing anything, all pieces towards the end of something are important because they move the medium forward. And she basically, in essence, was doing early music videos, which were called phonosense of operas. And she would go to Spain and, and shoot famous singers, famous dancers, etc. And they would lip sync no different than a music video, and then they would be played back. So very early, didn't last because it wasn't perfect. But as much as people think, oh, that was happening in France, Edison was doing different things in America, they all conversed with each other and kept up with each other, even though there was no internet, there was no WhatsApp, there wasn't emails, texting, any of that stuff. Through correspondence, people knew what the other person was doing, and these were important parts of moving the medium forward. And there she is again. <laughs> so it's pretty exceptional. Oh, in so many ways. She also pioneered tinting films. And you show some beautiful examples of that, uh, combining with dancing, as you mentioned, and the sound also. That was also something I didn't realize had happened. And there's so much in this film. We'll never do more than just a tidbit here and there. She uh, meets up and gets married to a British-born man, Herbert Blaché Bolton. And eventually, they go to the United States for a while, she's not doing much in the film, and that doesn't work well for her. She founds her own studio, Solax. Talk about that period of her life. It's one of my favorite parts of the film, actually, because it's her entrepreneurial spirit that comes to life. And if she didn't come to America, she probably would never have gone into open her own studio. So that's what's so wonderful about it, because we are able to track a lot of the material and find a lot of things in America that were documented because of that. So she retired from Gaumont 
and she followed her husband who was nine years younger. And she gave birth to Simone and she was going to be a stay-at-home mom. But she helped Herbert, who was running the chronophone talkies in Flushing and helping him with certain things because she was obviously director, head of production, studio owner, etc. And he didn't have that experience. Well, not studio owner then, but head of production in Gramont. Basically, I think she got bored. <laughs> I'm a woman of activity. I know how to make money. If I do this, will you join me? If I do this, means start a company. Because she saw that her competitor, Pathé, was making all these films, and she thought she could do better. And to hear a woman talk like that in 1909 or 1910 is, again, pretty extraordinary. Hard to believe that this woman really exists. It's almost like she belongs in a novel. But she goes for it. She, like any indie entrepreneur or filmmaker, she rents a little space and she starts making films and it blows up. And she ends up having to expand and, and build her own studio. And we can all relate to anybody who wants to start a small business. You start it out of your kitchen table. You do something in a garage. Steve Jobs was making phone calls on the floor when he was starting Apple outside of his garage. So the entrepreneurial spirit and the creative spirit is exceptionally, for me, exciting because I myself am an entrepreneur. And to see that somebody existed so long ago in the world of filmmaking is unbelievable and extremely inspiring to hear those words so early coming from a woman at that time when women can't even vote. Yeah, good point. So in 1911, she buys land in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and she's even making films while the studio's being built there, and she's pregnant with her second child, a son. She's taking on what you describe as divisive subjects, anti-Semitism, immigration, labor conflicts, contraception, and Westerns. She makes a whole bunch of Westerns with really strong women characters. It was so refreshing and exciting to learn about this, Pamela Green. <laughs> For me, too, because she was she was a badass. She was a badass and taking notes. And I think that's uh, what's great is that she was fearless and she saw what the audience was interested in. And she went after it. And at that time, Westerns are very popular. But what's interesting about the Westerns is she put women in charge, women at the helm, women heroines, whenever she could in many of these stories, which is very, very unusual at the time. It's unexpected. The women save the men. The women are in charge with horses in a military situation. She made a film called In the Year 2000. It's not in the film. It's a remake of consequences of feminism where women are in charge. You can't make it up. Joan Simon, who's the co-writer of the film with me, we always say, if you can see her, you can be her. And that's what's so great is that we have the footage to see these amazing films that she's made. And we can see her and hear her talk about it. And we can be inspired. And a younger generation can know that at the beginning of cinema, there was a woman and there were many that followed among the women you interview, and you have you interview so many different 
people, historians, filmmakers. Among them was Eva DuVernay. And she points out that Alice Guy Blachet made the first movie in 1912 with an all-black cast. It's called A Fool and His Money. Very briefly, tell us about that one. Well, that one was very exciting to show in the film because it wasn't an all-African-American cast by choice. Right. And what I think is different about this film is not just showing bullet points about who Alice was. It's basically showing her character as well throughout the film. The kind of You get to know the kind of person she is and her values. And at first it was supposed to be a mixed cast, white and black players. But the white players refused because they thought it would be embarrassing and not respectful to them to be paired with a black player and they removed themselves from the film. But she persisted and continued on and made the film with an all-black cast. Nevertheless, she persisted, yes. Yes. <laughs> Where have we heard that before? Done. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Okay, uh, more film history. And this was news to me among many things in the film that was news to me. Thomas Edison and the Eastman Kodak and eight other production companies created the trust in 1908. Talk about the trust and how that contributed to the demise of the Fort Lee branch of early cinema history. It wasn't just him, it was just investors that were controlling what cameras you can use and they wanted to monopolize that area. And only make certain films by certain people with certain actors and certain stories. And people had to be paying into the trust to be able to, you know, use the cameras and do certain things, but nobody wanted to be a part of that anymore. People wanted to be independent and make their own content. And he had detectives that would go out and find out if you were using a different camera, you would be penalized, all these different things. And the weather in Fort Lee, and on the East Coast, wasn't that great either. California was a place that had great weather. Edison wasn't there. So it made more sense for people to leave and just go make their own way and create their own content elsewhere. And that's why people moved to California. And then another aspect that made it very difficult for Alice and people like her and this is sort of an extension of what you were just talking about, was Wall Street got involved. Instead of just staying a creative industry, it became focused on the business of the industry. Explain to our listeners how that impacted Alice Guy Blachet. Well, I think it's a story that's very familiar to any creative endeavor, whether your Facebook or Snapchat or anything that's out there today, Apple, you eventually, uh, if you become something successful, investors want to be involved for you to grow. And I think that's what happened with the film business is that nobody saw the film having a future. And in fact, it was something demeaning and not something respectable at first. And once it became viable and there was a success rate and money was coming in, investors came into Wall Street, and once it came in the front door, as Steve Ross, professor at USC, said, women were shoved out the back door. So even if Alice wanted to continue later on, not only not having examples of her films because they weren't available, she would not have a chance to continue. And it didn't just affect her, it affected you know, many other women because it, 
It became a business. It became an assembly line. If you were a director, writer, producer who had all these different roles, you were divided up to only do one thing. And there were many other people that were men that were doing that one thing and they would take them on instead of women for sure because they weren't even allowed to vote. We've only gotten up to about 1920 in our discussion, and your movie goes beyond Alice's death in 1968 to the current era and how people are beginning to acknowledge her role, including people like Martin Scorsese and Robert Redford, for example. But we have to end our interview now, Pamela Green. What are the final words with which you'd like to leave our listeners My final words are, don't trust Wikipedia, don't trust everything you read, and if you have a vision and you have an idea and you're determined and passionate, you can do anything you set your mind to, no matter what the obstacles are. And if people or the society tell you you can't do it, ignore and just keep going, because if ours did it, we can definitely do it. Well, Pamela Green, thank you very much for, first of all, producing this incredible movie, Be Natural, The Untold Story of Alice Guy Blachet, and for joining us today on Radio Goes to the Movies. We really appreciate your work. Oh, thank you so much, Joy. I'll talk to you soon. Welcome to Radio Goes to the Movies, Sarah Dosa. Sarah, you wrote, directed, and produced the extraordinary documentary, Fire of Love. It premiered at this year's Sundance Festival as the day one film in the U.S. documentary competition and won the Jonathan Oppenheimer Editing Award for Aaron Casper and Jocelyn Chaput's superb editing, as well as raves from critics. And your own work has won a Peabody Award for Audrey and Daisy and an Emmy Award for Remastered, Tricky Dick and the Man in Black. And National Geographic Films acquired Fire for Love for release in 2022. But Mendocino Film Festival audiences can see it on June 3rd and 4th at the Coast Cinema. Fire of Love recounts the love between and work of two young French volcanologists, Katya and Maurice Crafts, whose courageous exploration and documentation of volcanoes revolutionized our understanding of Earth processes. They dedicated their lives to trying to answer questions like, quote, what forms and reforms the world and what is it that makes the Earth's heart beat, her blood flow, end of quotes. Sarah, how did you come to know of the Crofts and become inspired to bring their story to us in Fire of Love? Thank you so much for having me on. It's such an honor to uh, to be speaking with you right now. I first learned about Katya and Maurice Kraft when I was making the last film that I directed, which is a documentary entitled The Seer and the Unseen. That film tells a story of an Icelandic woman who is trying to save a lava field that's about to be threatened by absolutely needless construction. That film, we say it's a magically real documentary. Our protagonist, Raka, she is in communication with spirits of nature. And we wanted some magical footage of volcanoes, because Iceland is a volcanic island, uh, to help kind of tell this magically real story. So we started searching for archives of volcanoes in Iceland. And it was through that research that we first learned about Katya and Marie's craft, because they just photographed and shot some absolutely stunning imagery of, of Iceland's volcanoes erupting from 1968 all the way to the, through the 80s. 
once we learned more about them and their story and their unique love, as well as their successes and, and what they brought to the field of science, we just became more and more captivated with them and, and knew that we wanted to tell a story about their love for the earth as well as their love for each other. The crafts were one in their obsession with volcanoes, but they were complementary in their approaches and division of labor, which certainly advanced the success of their work. And when asked if they were the only volcanologist couples in one of their many media appearances, Marie said he, quote, doesn't think there are any other couples. And if there are, I pity them because it's very hard for volcanologists to live together it's volcanic. We erupt <laughs> often, ended that quote. So, Sarah, mm-hmm. tell us about their partnership. Yeah, so Maurice and Katia first met in the late 60s when they were university students at the University of Strasbourg in France. They shared a very rare passion for volcanology, which was such a young field at that time. So they were very quickly drawn together and formed a very close bond. But volcanoes represented the third love in, in a love triangle between the two of them and volcanoes. Volcanology is extremely difficult, especially if you're working in the field, and you have to be totally in sync in order to pursue such dangerous work. So Katia and Maurice knew that if they were going to go towards this third love of volcanoes, they they really had to have a strong partnership. However, humans are challenging and complex individuals, and they did have different approaches. Maurice, for example, he described his love for volcanoes as a kind of, quote-unquote, kamikaze existence. He was so seduced by the power and the danger of volcanoes that he sought to get as close to them as humanly possible. Katya is extremely bold as well and deeply in love with volcanoes. But for her, the danger was something she tried to understand more methodologically through the perspective of a scientist. And so they sometimes were at odds about how to go about their work. For Maurice, it was about getting as close as possible. And for Katia, it was more about getting as deep and and more of like a sustained long-term relationship with volcanoes as, as possible. And so they would have conflict, but they always would reconcile because they knew that if they weren't totally in sync, if they weren't able to support each other, then they would end up losing this phenomenal lifestyle that they built for each other, which was completely unique and did allow them to travel around the world photographing volcanic eruptions, which for them was their pathway of, of how to live a meaningful life. So I love the fact actually that they described their relationship as volcanic. For us, that was a, a signal that volcanoes were really their quote unquote love language and kind of opened up doors for us to use their volcanic imagery to tell the story of their love. June 3rd, 1991 was their last day. They leave behind samples that they took in the field, books, articles, hundreds of hours of footage, thousands of photos, and a million questions. And that's a quote from Miranda July's narration. You, as the writer of the film, had to select from this legacy what to show. And I wonder if you could share about that process. Yeah, absolutely. So I should first say making the film was a highly collaborative process. I had the great joy of working with two wonderful producers, Shane Boris and Ina Fitchman, two fabulous editors, Aaron Casper and Jocelyn Chaput. And Shane and Aaron and Jocelyn and I all wrote the narration together. So it was a wonderful team effort. For us, you're right, there was so much material to pull from because Katya and Marie's left behind this vast legacy. There was, for example, about 200 hours of 16 millimeter film footage that we were working with and thousands of Katya's still photographs along with the nearly 20 books that they wrote and countless articles as well. 
for us, one very helpful thing that helped us narrow our focus was through the prism of a love story. There's so many different stories that you could tell using Maurice and Katya's legacy. But for us, there is one sentence in a book Maurice authored where he says, for me, Katya and Volcanoes, it is a love story. And once we read that, we thought, okay, here's our thesis. This is the lens through which everything in the film will become filtered through. And it gave us kind of that license to use the idea of a love triangle between Katya and Maurice's Volcanoes as our guiding force for the film because it was something that was authentic to them and their story. It wasn't something that we externally imposed upon them. So we looked for imagery that really spoke to the complexity of love, imagery of bubbling lava that could kind of signal the early glimmers of, of falling in love, as well as the explosive, grandiose shots to show both tumults as, as well as the power of what it means to not just fall in love with a person, but to be so drawn towards a unique path in life like volcanology. That helped us. However, at the same time, this was a film about exploring the unknown for Katya and Maurice. It was the mystery of volcanoes that drew them in very deeply. And for us, we really saw a parallel with the mysteries of the human heart. Love is something that is continually baffling and unknowable. And so we really tried to draw those parallels and the idea of questions. What don't we know as the filmmakers about Katya and Maurice's legacy? What could we never quite ask them since they have passed, despite all the research we did? So foregrounding those questions as well, along with the concrete imagery of volcanoes, is really important for us. And that's why we, we have some shots in the film that have nothing to do with volcanoes. For example, a shot of some cowboys in, in Mexico who do these dramatic rides into the sunset, which for us, we just imagined Maurice behind the camera, like directing them, saying like action as if Maurice was a Western director or something of, of the, the, that time. So we wanted to be playful with the questions that we asked, aside from the scientific inquiry about the unknown and about the power of volcanoes as well. Maurice was in charge of doing the filming and Katya did the still photography. And you bring out how each of these has advantages for the study of volcanoes. For example, some of her photographs are just, there's no words for them. <laughs> but you bring out that the photos allow study of what happens too fast in the field and you give the example of the parabolic trajectories of volcanic <laughs> bombs or how sprayed lava is stretched into strands called Pele's hair. Tati and Maurice were so bold in, in how close that they got to observe volcanoes, and that allowed them to capture this stunning imagery that hadn't been captured before on cameras. Of course, it existed in oral traditions throughout the world because people have been getting close to volcanoes all around the world for thousands of years. But capturing it on camera really allowed not just this phenomena to be studied because it is over in a split second and then gone and it will never happen the same way twice. So the fact that they were able to adhere it to posterity through their boldness of getting close as well as the, their cameras uh, really did contribute volumes to the field of, of setting volcanoes. And those examples you brought up were, were just two of the many that they advanced through their work. We also think that it's, it kind of showcased their philosophy on life, too. They really knew that life could be over in an instant when you're doing such dangerous work. However, by recording their adventures and their inquiry through cameras, in a way, they created this mythic existence for the two of them where they were able forever live on. Their human lives ended in 1991, but here we are getting to experience the legacy that they left behind. So we had fun with that parallel. That was something that was very meaningful for us as, as a filmmaking team to explore. 
I was delighted at what rebels they were, particularly Maurice. <laughs> so they met in the 60s, and there was this global revolution, supposedly anyway, at least people thought there was, and they were part of it. Maurice was adamant that classification of volcanoes should be banned because each volcano <laughs> has a unique personality. And I'm quoting him, not to be mean, but it's the old beards and academics who classify things, forcing a whole generation to use their models. There's no truth in this. It's better to study each volcano separately and avoid abusive classifications. End of the quote. And they spend the rest of their lives doing just that. And it's easy to forget how young the theory of plate tectonics and that sort of thing is. And their contributions to giving evidence to the validity of these theories cannot be overstated. You're absolutely right. The idea of plate tectonic theory was first came into scientific parlance in, in the 1920s, but it wasn't until the late 1960s that it was more widely embraced as the model for understanding how the world worked, how volcanoes erupted, why they erupted, as well as the reasons for continental shift and drift. So their work, they were like popular volcanologists, their savviness with their public image, they, they were very much celebrities in, in France. The fact that they were able to forward these ideas of volcanology and give an accessible understanding of how the earth worked. That really had quite an impact on science at the time. It drew people in in a way where perhaps they wouldn't necessarily be drawn in before because you had these two extremely charming, um, adventurous, likable figures who were doing the storytelling that allowed people to engage with these theories. So it was quite remarkable, the, the work that they did. And of course, their, their gorgeous imagery was the main point of focus that seduced people to come to their work. But you're absolutely right. Maurice's rebellious nature, especially in, in condemning classification, that was pretty radical at that time and I think remains pretty radical. So much of, of scientific methodologies rely on models, scaling systems and understanding processes in some sort of buildable type of hypothesis. So for someone to say like, no, there's no overarching model here, there's no system system of classification that can work is was very controversial at that time, but it has very much impacted how volcanology continues to work today. Having made that declaration, he then goes on to put volcanoes into two broad categories. <laughs> uh, red volcanoes, which he considered friendly or nice. He used the term gentil. And they are what we often think of when we think of volcanoes with the night visions of red magma flowing down. And these form as tectonic plates pull apart at hot spots. But then there's the gray volcanoes. He calls them the killers, the explosive ones. And they're the ones where plates come together and collide and pressure and heat builds till there's a cataclysmic release. And that's the ones like Vesuvius and Mount Tambora and Pele and uh, Galingang and this uh, recent one, I forget what they named that one in the South Pacific. And of the 350 volcanologists in the world, only 50 study the gray volcanoes. And that's what they really dedicated their study to in their latter days. And they did that for a very important reason. These are the dangerous ones. Would you care to expand on that, Sarah Dosa? So you're right. They did kind of have these two broad categories, gray and red volcanoes. The red volcanoes were enchantingly beautiful and for them kind of symbols of creation and objects of study 
Many volcanologists will talk about red volcanoes as kind of training volcanoes. For example, there's one on the island of Reunion off the coast of Madagascar called Piton de la Pones, which was a volcano that Katyn Reef absolutely adored. And that was a place, because the lava flows were more predictable, they were able to study it and get up close. And for them, that provided kind of a first step towards engaging with volcanoes. However, as you say, the gray volcanoes, otherwise known as explosive volcanoes, which are known for these pyroclastic surges of extraordinarily fast-moving, hot, and deadly gases, they're so dangerous and so unpredictable that very few volcanologists are able to study them. However, after witnessing the power of the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980. Actually, I should say they they were not direct witnesses of that eruption. They arrived too late to actually see it. And very tragically, a volcanologist, David Johnston, was killed in the eruption as he was observing it. But Maurice and Katia were not there themselves. But the aftermath of that eruption provided such an opportunity for them to study gray volcanoes that they became so enthralled with, with this type of eruptions and specifically their force. Mount St. Helens, for example, was thought to have basically the energy release of 25,000 times that of uh, the bomb dropped on Hiroshima during World War II. So it was this extraordinary power that they wanted to learn about and understand and get close to. And they thought that they were uniquely equipped to do that mode of inquiry, as well as the courage and the boldness to get close to such a deadly force. They became so inspired by that eruption in Mount St. Helens and continue to study, really dedicate their life to specifically this type of volcano. And then five years later, they witnessed a tragedy in Colombia at Nevado del, del Ruiz volcano that ended up killing about 25,000 people due to the mud flows that resulted after the gray volcano erupted. And then they really believed that, okay, we are some of the people who are willing to study this deadly force. We have studied this deadly force. We are uniquely equipped to try to help people to understand it too. And if we can convince governments as well as people who live in relationship with volcanoes around the world to know a little bit more about how they work, perhaps we can save lives moving forward. So they were able to kind of use that specific knowledge in a way that ended up saving thousands of lives. And final words for our listeners. I think for me, Cassia and Maurice's story represents what it means to truly live a meaningful life as well as die a meaningful death. And so much of that was about their pursuit of love. They went into the unknown all the while, knowing that they could never quite fully understand the power of volcanoes. And for me, we made this film kind of at the beginning of the pandemic at a time where there was such uncertainty and fear and isolation. And getting to be met with this story about what it means to live a meaningful life and, and reconcile fear and go towards the unknown. They were just such guides, forces of inspiration during such a hard time. And so it's my hope that audiences, once they see the film, will be met with the same kind of inspiration that, that I felt. And I'm just so thrilled that Maurice and Katya's imagery gets to travel the world again. So thank you so much for, for having it at, at the Mendocino Film Festival and, and having me on your, your show. It's, it's really an honor to get to speak about them and, and their work and their story. It's an honor to have such an amazing filmmaker on our airwaves. Do you have any sense of when National Geographic Films will be releasing it more broadly? Yes, it'll be in theaters in early July, and then it's going to be on the Disney Plus platform, most likely in October, but definitely this fall. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah Dosa, on Radio Goes to the Movies. We really look forward to your future films. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Welcome to Radio Goes to the Movies, Chikara Motomura. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Joy.
In your film, Journey to Hakusai, which you produced, wrote, directed, edited, and did the cinematography and sound, you follow Marin County artist Tom Killian from his Northern California studio to Kyoto, Japan, to study with fifth-generation master printmakers to learn how to print in the Japanese woodblock tradition of Katushika Hokusai. How did this process of documenting Tom's journey to Hokusai begin? Tom and I were fellow parents at a school where our kids attended. So I knew Tom, and we went to Hawaii when Tom mentioned that he always wanted to go to Japan to take a workshop to study traditional hand printing method, which he never learned and never practiced. Up to that point, he was always doing everything traditionally up to the printing. At the printing process, he was using German press machine to do printing using oil paint instead of watercolor paint, which is used in Japan traditionally. So he always wanted to do that. He mentioned that to me. And at that point, I said, that would be interesting, Tom. And then a year later, I wanted to do my own project. Up to that point, I never done a feature length project of my own and I was ready to do it. And my interest was always in documentary filmmaking instead of fiction, which I was working on with a fellow filmmaker, Rob Nielsen, who is very well known in Bay Area as an independent filmmaker. But for my personal project, I always wanted to do a documentary film. And the conversation I had with Tom came to my mind. And then I was able to see how this project is going to be very clearly. Tom, a very established woodblock print artist, and his work I admire very much. I do have his print at home. And him wanting to go to Japan to learn the printing process that he always wanted to do, but also to pay homage to his inspirational master, Katsushika Hokusai. It was, to me, as a filmmaker, very clear. There is a story there. When I mentioned that to Tom, he said, <laughs> right away, he said, sure, because he wanted to go to Japan. And I ended up setting everything up. So that was great. When you make a documentary film, to me, the most critical component of whether it's going to be successful or not, I think, is how close intimate you can become with your subject. So the fact that I knew Tom and he felt comfortable with me and he embraced me being around, that was one of the biggest reasons that I was able to make this piece. So after that, it was all, I became a travel agent and a researcher and I set the whole thing up. I found Kenji Takenaka, a fifth generation print master in Kyoto. And then I arranged the whole trip. We went there. Tom did his thing. I did my thing. And so that part was very straightforward. I didn't really have to do anything because he was really learning in that short span of time. And I just filmed and filmed and filmed. But the other part, which is him paying homage to Hokusai, I have to find right locations. And he went to his grave in Tokyo and to some uh, the small mountain town in Nagano, where Hokusai had a very close connection to and where his wonderful works of art are located. And places the Hokusai did one of the famous Mount Fuji series. 
we wanted to find the actual location, which really is hard to find now. And then we filmed all those things. And I came home. We did some filming here. We, I wanted to show you who Tom is in his setting. And I edited it all together. And voila, the film was born. I dare say, in addition to everything else you've said you did in this, which is way more than I even realized, I guess you were also the translator from Japanese to English and back. Am I right about that? Yes. In my past life, past meaning I'm this life, but in the past, <laughs> <laughs> I did translation and also I did interpretation. Since I have some Japanese clients, I always use in both languages. So on the fly, I'm filming Kenji's English is really wonderful. And he's not shy, which is very unusual for Japanese, as you might imagine. But at the same time, certain complex ideas he could not express. So I have to interpret for him while I was filming. And I have to translate that to Tom and back and forth. That wasn't too hard because of my experience. However, after two, three days of working morning through evening and doing all of that, I think I overworked my brain and I had a pretty bad headache. So during the filming, I have to lie down on the floor <laughs> and I have to take a break. But nah, it was fine. It didn't last too long. Perhaps we should take just a moment to remind our listeners about Hokusai and his contribution to art and what an amazing artist he was in whatever way you want to talk about it. What he produced, the exquisite nature of his artistic abilities, his vision, and his longevity and the work he was producing at the age of 89. Right. He is the most iconic Japanese artist in history. I think that his Great Waves print is very familiar to most of the people outside of Japan, too. Mount Fuji series also are very famous. So I think the way to look at Hokusai is hmm, where to start, because he has done so much wonderful work. The art historian do talk about his influence on the Western art and the Impressionist, but somehow his work was bought up or used in some kind of printed material and was taken to the West. And when people saw it and they were really stunned by what he created, his art form. I cannot talk too much in details about how all of that happened, who did what, but I know that his art had a tremendous influence on the Western art. Because the majority of his work was printed, woodblock printing, it could be put into large productions. Exactly. Well, anyway, people will need to study on their own about that. They should. They should. Even, even if you go to Wikipedia, you could learn so much about Hokusai. You show us Tom creating from a sketch he did a long time ago, moonlit Sierra Pines, showing a large tree in the foreground and a lake and the moon. And we see him in his California studio carving the wood to make five color blocks that he then takes to Japan to study with this fifth generation printmaker, Kenji. They 
managed to produce some very beautiful prints within four and a half days, which is pretty unheard of, I have the impression, for someone who's never done it before. All right, you take it from there. I guess the four and a half days was the condensed version of what normally takes months or years. And Kenji said that that to me, that this never really happens. But because of Tom's experience in his own right over the years, he was able to pick up many, many nuances that involved in each steps and was able to produce the final product. Printing process is very tedious. Tedious, tedious in the sense that it involves many, many physical steps. And each step is something you have to learn and master before you can move on to the next step. And it, each step takes time. But since we didn't have too much time, we have to sort of forge our way through. And Kenji, knowing what the purpose of this workshop was, he was very patient and he basically paid attention to everything that Tom was doing. And together, Tom and Kenji, being very highly experienced artists, they were able to really communicate. And I think that's how Tom was able to pick up the skill set that he needed to get this hand printing done. And also, I might add that Tom has read a lot about hand printing process. So intellectually, I think he knew what it's supposed to be. But doing it with your hand is different. But he was able to really pick up quickly with a lot of painful moments. <laughs> In Japan, we'd take our shoes off and we'd get into the house. At Kenji's studio, that's what we do too. We take shoes off and everything is done on the floor, wooden floor. And when Tom was mixing colors, he laid down all the newspapers and then everything was on the newspaper so that if he spills, newspaper would catch it. And even that, Kenji said, that is one of the mark of professionals. <laughs> I think even though everything was new to Tom, he knew how to approach professionally. And when he got to the color, mixing color, creating his own color, that's where his own artistic sense, the visual sense of what color is what he wants for what part of his woodblock. That really was something very surprising and fascinating to Kenji, who is trained in the traditional Japanese aesthetics. So definitely Tom brought his own so-called Western aesthetic sense or Tom Kirion's aesthetic sense to his art and created the color using many different pigment. And he got five color blocks and he had to apply this color. And, but that's also another long, arduous process. You put the color and then you print it and look at it. It's not exactly what Tom wanted. Or when a few layers of colors are put on together, then you look at it, it's not exactly what the artists going through this process. It's not exactly what they are thinking about. So it was trial and error, trial and error. There's a lot of struggle, but even though it was such an intense, full of struggle, four and a half days at the end of that period, I think Tom really felt satisfied for everything that had happened. 
he did such a beautiful job. I also appreciated the part of the journey where you went to the master papermaker's place, uh, the ninth generation. He's a living national treasure in Japan. The process of making this paper from Kozo tree fibers, and what a difference the paper made to the final results. Definitely. As you said, he is the living national treasure and such a wonderful, wonderful person. He was 85. And with that vigor he had and that dedication, you see it in the film. And because of that process, how painstakingly they create that quality caliber of paper. That's why these hand printing that really taxes paper with pressing and putting the paint on and all that can withstand those abuses and the color and whatever is on the paper come out really wonderfully. Now, will you be attending the festival? Yes, I am. Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Goes to the Movies, Chikara Motobura. Thank you very much, Joy, for inviting me. You have just heard interviews with filmmakers whose films are screening at this year's Mendocino Film Festival. Pamela Green, whose film Be Natural, The Untold Story of Alice Guy Blachet, is sponsored by Queenie's Roadside Cafe and Frankie's, and it's screening at the Coast Cinemas on Saturday, June 4th at 1 p.m. Sarah Dosa's Fire of Love can be seen at the Coast Cinemas on Friday, June 3rd at 10 a.m., and Saturday, June 4th at 4 p.m. Shikaro Motomura's tickets for his film Journey to Hokusai have been sold out. You can find out more at MendocinoFilmFestival.org. And thanks to the Mendocino Film Festival staff for production assistance and for organizing another terrific film festival. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of this station's staff, members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear archived editions of Forthright Radio by going to our website, forthright.media. And those intrigued by volcanoes may wish to hear our interview with Gillen Darcy Wood about the 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora, mentioned in our interview with Sarah Dosa. You can find it on forthright.media by searching for Tambora, the eruption that changed the world. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.